I'd like to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extra Bibles. We give them away. We recognize that many people did not come from a church that read and taught right from the Bible. And so if this is new to you, don't feel embarrassed. My first exposure, I was shocked when everyone had their Bible. So if you can't find the Gospel of Mark, there's a table of contents. We'll help you. But we are fully convinced that the Bible is the Word of God and that it will transform your life as you allow it. We're convinced that Jesus is the only way to heaven because the Bible says that. And we have a burden to see people all over the world come to Christ. I shared with you when I got back from Maine that I had begun to build a relationship with three girls from Turkey who were spending the summer up there. I was so encouraged this morning, I spoke to one of the elders from the church up there, and they met up again with these girls from Turkey. They had them over for a campfire, talked about the Lord, and introduced them to s'mores. They'd never had s'mores. And now the girls make s'mores every night in their oven. So who knows? It might become a trending topic in Turkey. But continue to pray that they'll be reached with the gospel. We're in Mark chapter 10 right now, and we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and we've said that Mark is teaching us what it means to clarify Jesus and commit to the journey. You cannot be a Christian if you don't know who Jesus is. We learn from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of God who came and lived a sinless life. He's the Messiah who came to suffer on the cross, to die and pay the full penalty of our sin then on the third day to rise from the dead. But as Jesus reveals who he is, he then calls people to make a decision. Christianity calls for a decision. You're not a Christian by osmosis. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You become a Christian when you respond to Christ's invitation. And his invitation is repent from your sin, meaning acknowledge that you're a sinner. You're not good enough for heaven. Be willing to turn from your sin and trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you do that, the Bible teaches that you become a forgiven follower of Christ. You become what, what the Bible calls a disciple. So while you are forgiven and you are promised the hope of heaven, during your life in this world, we're growing into a transformed lifestyle, a lifestyle of discipleship. So our mission here at Cairn is to, or at um, Riverstone, and Karen, where am I? Okay, so, is to advance the gospel and make disciples who make disciples. So I'll just say this right now. I'm sure that some of you here are not going to heaven. I don't say that to offend you. I just know in a setting of this many people that some of you are probably not going to heaven because either you don't understand how to get there or you're unwilling to respond to Jesus' message, of which Jesus doesn't force anyone, but he calls us to himself. One of our goals is to show you from the Bible. The Bible says these things have been written that you might know that you have eternal life. So my passion is that if you're not sure if you're saved, what is more important than making sure that you are forgiven by Christ? The Bible tells us that you can know this. If you are not interested in that, Please, I beg you to reconsider. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. So in this passage, Jesus is assuming that these followers at this point are disciples. He's speaking to believers, and he's going to address 
the many implications of discipleship. Namely here, we're going to talk about three very important things. We're going to talk about marriage, parenting, and finances. The easiest place to be a disciple of Christ is on Sunday morning in church. Hi, brother. Praise the Lord. Clap for Jesus. The hardest place to be a disciple of Christ is in your home where you're trying to live out what it means to be a Christ follower. So we preach right from the Bible, unembarrassed, to believe that the Word of God is authoritative. To disbelieve and to disobey the Bible is to disbelieve God. If you don't agree with what I say, please don't shoot the messenger. Although I don't mind because I'm going to heaven. But the point is, these are the words of Jesus. They aren't necessarily popular. They're not up for you know, whether you or I agree, rather what we want to do is discuss what did Jesus say. And so let's begin in Mark 10, verse 1. Rising up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he began to teach them. Jesus came to save sinners. And the way that people get saved is you have to teach them the way. His primary mission wasn't to make them happy. It was to, to bring them heaven and so he would teach them the gospel verse 2 says some pharisees came up to him now we've seen by now that these pharisees these religious leaders don't like jesus so notice they came testing him they didn't come sincerely with questions they weren't interested in the answer to this question they were just trying to find a way to make him look bad and so they began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife now, again, we know their motives. They don't really care, but they want to know what Jesus has to say here. Now, in the parallel passage in Matthew, it says, is it lawful to, to divorce your wife for any reason? And so the background to this, it's important to understand that in Jesus' day, among Jews, there were two views of divorce. And you can read about these online, the school of Hillel and so forth, but the point would be this. One view of divorce was that you could divorce your wife for any reason. Literally, there was one example of a man who divorced his wife because she burnt dinner, right? The other school said, no, 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 there's, it's very restrictive. There are only very exceptional reasons for divorce. So the first thing they want to know is, Jesus, what do you got for us? What's your view? So look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to them, well, what did Moses command you which by the way every christian should ask that question when people say what do you think about this well it's not what i think what does the bible say if the bible addresses it let's start there so what jesus is saying what does the bible say well they knew what the bible says they knew that in deuteronomy chapter 24 there's a passage that that talks about a man divorcing his wife and so jesus is like why are you asking me if it's lawful what did moses say so they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says, yeah, but look at verse 5. It wasn't God's design. It wasn't his intention. It was because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. So what Jesus is going to do at this point, he's going to say, hey, you know what? Let's not start with how to get out of a marriage. You know, it would be pretty weird if you if you went and got a loan, and as soon as you signed for the loan, you said to the banker, now, under what ways can I get out of this, right? 
So Jesus is like, let's step back and look at the big picture. Let's talk about God's design for marriage. Let's talk about the reasons for marriage. So, so Jesus says in verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Okay? Now here's what I want you to understand. Becoming a Christian is a process of receiving truth from the Bible and then agreeing to change your thinking and follow that. So even that phrase from the beginning of creation is going to cause many of you to go, do I believe that? Because there are a whole lot of people in America right now who do not believe in a beginning of creation. But rather some random evolution. And maybe we just evolved from some amoebas. The Bible doesn't allow for that. You cannot be a Christian and say, oh, I don't believe in creation. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created. And so at this point, he says, in the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. Here we go again. God's not suggesting, hey, listen, this whole gender thing, that's just a cultural, you know, things are changing now. You get to pick your gender. No. God made them male and female, and he designed them for marriage. Verse 7. He then moves to a later portion in Genesis 2 when he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, and consequently they're no longer two, but one flesh. So notice, God made them male and female, and for this cause they'll get married. Really important here to understand this. Marriage was not man's idea. It was God's design. It was his idea. It was in his mind even before he created the world. So this is not some institutional option that people can pick and choose. The creator of the universe has instituted that a man and woman are to be married. Not all of them. But in addition to that, he says in verse 9, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now that was a bombshell for all the disciples. In a moment, they're going to go like, geez, we need to talk about this. And we're going to get there. But I want to start by just reminding you of some basic truths, whether you're married, whether you want to be married, whether you wish you weren't married, or whether you used to be married and you're trying to figure out what happened. Everybody needs to think about what the Bible teaches about marriage. So let's start with this. What are the reasons for marriage in the Bible? Why did God create marriage? Does he tell us? Yes, he gives us a number of reasons. Number one, not in any particular order, marriage is designed for a partnership relationship. When he created Adam, he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. Okay. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, notice what I'm saying here. A partnership, right? If you come alongside and you say, let me help you, then we are assuming here that I have a job that I'm doing. So in marriage, Adam already had a job to obey God, do God's will, keep the animals, keep the garden. And Eve was designed to come alongside as his equal partner to help him, to provide him with companionship and to complete him. Now, understandably, there are people that have the gift of singleness and you're not a misfit if you're not married, but it starts with this concept 
of partnership. The Bible says two are better than one. But secondly, the second purpose of marriage is the procreation of a godly seed. Let me say that again. The procreation of a godly seed. So when God created Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, here's what he wasn't doing. When he made Adam and Eve and he said, I want to make man in my image, he didn't say, let's start with two, and now I want you to be a factory of, of um, statues of me, right? He knew that sin was going to enter into the world, and it was his design that through marriage and the procreation of children, that the world would be infiltrated with godly people. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, when God says that he was angry with these men who were divorcing their wives unbiblically, he said, has not God created marriage that you might raise a godly offspring? So it is his intention to fill the earth with followers of Christ, primarily through marriages where you're raising your kids for Christ. Okay, ready for this one? Believe it or not, God created marriage for pleasure. Are we allowed to say that? Does it not make sense to you that God loves to bring us pleasure? That's why we're not Robotrons who eat a Pez brick every day. He gives us all kinds of food. The Bible says God has given us all things to gratefully enjoy. Marriage is intended to be for a blessing. Unfortunately, many of you are enduring your marriage. You're not enjoying your marriage, and there's a host of reasons for that, of which we can't get into them this morning. Not constant bliss, but nor was it intended to be constant berating of one another. Even sexual pleasure. The Bible says marriage is honorable, the bed's undefiled. It's not the nasty, right? It's a gift from God for marriage. It's not just like something you have to do to have kids. God's design is that we would enjoy our marriage. So it's partnership, procreation, pleasure, and then it's also designed to be a picture, a visual aid, an image that we can learn something from. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loves his church. Lay down your life for them. And wives, wives, sub submit to your husbands. Respect your husbands. And then when Paul says, here's why, he says, this is a great mystery but I speak with reference to Christ and the church. You see, an earthly marriage that is at least in some respect modeling a Christian marriage is giving us a picture of the triune God, first of all. God is a relational being. Remember, he is one God who exists in three persons, and the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy this precious, beautiful unending, eternal, glorious love and unity, and God wants that to spill over in us to share in that. Jesus prayed for all of his followers in John 17, Father, that they might be one even as we are one. And so God has designed that as we look at a marriage that is unfolding and the Spirit of God is at work, that we see a picture of the triune God and we see a picture of Christ's sacrificial love for his church and a church in its devotion to Christ, a Christian with unfailing faithfulness to the Savior. And so God has designed marriage for various reasons, but he also has rules for marriage. He doesn't just say, here's why, but he says, here's how. 
And several of those rules involve, number one, a man and a woman. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So while it's not popular in our culture, the Bible makes it very clear that it is wrong for two men or two women to marry. And the Apostle Paul said, preach the word in season and out of season. For the time will come when many people will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own desires, they will seek teachers and they will accumulate people to tickle their ears. So you can find churches who tell you, you can be a Christian and a man can marry a man. You can find that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Secondly, marriage is permanent. God says what God has joined, let no man separate. Third, marriage is not intended to be finding the one you love and marrying whom you love. Marriage is a commitment to love the one you marry. That's a big difference. You don't go, ooh, me and Becky, we're in love, so we're going to get married. And then 10 years later, we're going to not be married because we're not in love. It's so opposite of the Bible. The Bible teaches don't necessarily marry the one you love, as wonderful as that sounds, but you are making a vow to love the one you marry. The easiest part of marriage is this, I do. The hard part is do it, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love sacrifices. And you say, Pastor, you're being so harsh. Well, I, I really don't want to be harsh. Because we then have to say, well, gee, that's pie in the sky, but look around, Pastor. This world's messed up. What about divorce? And Jesus addresses that. Verse 10, the disciples begin questioning him about this again, and they say, and he said to them, now listen, this is sobering. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. What? Then over half of America is a bunch of adulterers. But one of the things that we have to learn to do is to recognize that Scripture interprets Scripture, that we have to rightly divide the word of truth, comparing passages of Scripture. So I want to I point something else here. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, he that divorces his wife except for immorality commits adultery. And the word immorality there is the word porneia, which has to do with sexual sin, of which we can ask the question, well, does that include porn and pornography and things like that? And those are discussions that, that I can't handle with you right now, but, but things that we, we need to address as a church. But I want to say this that the fact is that the Bible does permit divorce. So even this passage, Jesus didn't say it's a sin to divorce, but then he said, and marries another, right? So then we'll talk about remarriage. So we're not going to skip over stuff, but let's start with this. Marriage is permissible, but not desirable. It's not noteworthy, but sometimes necessary. And we believe here at Riverstone that the Bible makes two clear grounds for divorce. Two places 
and reasons whereby it's permissible. Number one, for sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus says in Matthew 19, if you divorce your spouse except for sexual unfaithfulness. Now, even there, I want to say this. That doesn't demand a divorce, but it allows for it. I think there's situations where perhaps someone had a one-night stand or something. That's wicked, and I'm not making light of it, and God have mercy that I never do that. But the point would be, it's not just like, you have to get divorced. There's a glory to the cross of Calvary and the grace of God that there are people who have had affairs in the marriage, and it has come out into the light, and through repentance and counseling and accountability, their marriage has been restored. But that, that doesn't mean that the victim has to stay married. There is permission. The second allowance for, for divorce is very specific. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says this, if you are married to an unbeliever, don't, don't, don't send them away, and don't leave them. Now, we might stop and say, wait, I thought it's wrong to be married to an unbeliever. It is. So let's remember this. The Bible says you're free to marry whoever you wish as long as it's in the Lord. It has to be another Christian. If you are a believer and you marry an unbeliever, that's a sin. Okay? doesn't mean you should get a divorce for it, but you've sinned. But there are a number of reasons why people end up in a, in a relationship married to an unbeliever. One is they marry someone who claimed to be a believer, only over time made it quite evident that they're not a believer. A second case would be a person gets saved after they're a believer, right? So you and your spouse are married, and then you become a Christian, and they don't. And, and they have the option of saying, I don't like it. Well, Paul says, if you're the Christian, don't leave them because how do you know whether you will be the catalyst to bring your spouse to salvation? And he says, your children are set apart by having a believer in the home. So if you're married to an unbeliever, as painful and difficult as it is, especially if they're making it hard on you, Paul says, don't you divorce them. But he says, if they leave, if they want out, if that unbeliever says, this is not what I signed up for, Paul says, let them go. And then he says this, you are no longer under bondage. Now again, there are different ways to interpret that, but many Christians, including our church, would say, hey, that's grounds for divorce. If your unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to be married to you, let them go. But then we have to ask the question, well, what about remarriage? Jesus says here, if, if, if you marry a divorced person, you're committing adultery. Well, again, in trying to interpret Scripture with Scripture, we would suggest here at Riverstone, though not all would agree with this, there are some who would say, you can't remarry, period. But we would say this, if a divorce was biblical, then remarriage is permissible. A 21-year-old young lady, her husband decides he wants out and he's just being a jerk and a player and just runs off with some girl. We believe that if the divorce was biblical, then the remarriage is permissible. Well, what if you remarried unbiblically? Well, then Jesus said you committed adultery. Should you then re-divorce? I would say no. 
but you should acknowledge that you sinned and ask God's mercy and forgiveness. But pastor, are there any other reasons for divorce in the Bible? Well, actually, the Bible's not clear on this, and this is where Christians will debate, okay? Some Christians would say, absolutely not, right? Unless they cheated on you, you can't divorce them. And you go, all right, let's just use some common sense. So a husband repeatedly beats his wife, goes to jail for 50 years for beating the kids almost to death. Does she have grounds to divorce? No. But if he commits a one-night stand, yeah. So that's where I would suggest we have to try to exercise some prudence here. I want to suggest a book, okay? It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. The author is Jim Neuheiser. We're going to have some of these in the bookstore. I'm going to say it again, but listen to me. What's my rule? I say it twice, and then what? You forget already? Don't come up afterward and say, what was that book again? But you can, of course. I'm going to put it up here. But marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Very balanced. He gives the different views. But I want to read you just briefly on this whole issue of what some would say, well, what about abuse? What about extreme situations? Well, every church has to take a position. Our position is, is that there may be some situations that we examine carefully and due to the severity and longevity and degree of damage that's done, we don't believe that we would bring discipline against someone who divorces. So, listen to this. Physical, verbal, and emotional types of abuse are contrary to God's design for marriage. Victims of abuse have a right to protect their lives and the lives of their children. Church leaders should carefully investigate claims of abuse and should be faithful to protect the innocent, which may sometimes involve offering shelter or calling the authorities. While some cases of abuse may equate to abandonment by an unbeliever, every effort should be made to rescue the marriage and great caution should be exercised before permitting divorce. So there are a lot of people that say, hey, none of your business, preacher. Well, if you're a Christian, don't say that. The Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch for your souls as those who must give an account. And there's a lot of freewheeling dealers out there. We just do whatever we want. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It means to come under the authority of of a body of Christ. That's why we have accountability. That's why we have a membership covenant. That's why some of you are going to say, I don't want to be a part of that. And you don't have to. But if you don't want to do that, you need to ask yourself deep and wide, why? Do I not want to be under a community that's teaching the Bible, that's holding us accountable and helping to love one another? So I realize that these are painful things. But let's recognize that there's no Humpty Dumpties with Jesus. Some of you are already divorced. He can put you together again. Some of you are on the verge of divorce, and there's hope. We're offering four small groups coming up on marriage. If you're not signed up for one, you want to get in one, let us know. We do premarital counseling. But I want to tell you, there's some reasons to fight for for marriages. One, it brings glory to God. That was his design. Number two, it's a gospel example. 
We talk about being Christians and how Christ can strengthen us. Titus chapter 2 says, for example, wives, don't badmouth your husbands so that the word of God is dishonored. And guys, don't be talking about your wife as my old lady. Like as Christians, we have an opportunity to be an example to unbelievers. God didn't necessarily call us. I wish I could say, hey, everybody here can have a happy marriage. But please don't come to me and say, I want out of my marriage because I'm not happy. Right? Because I'm going to say to you, I'm sorry you're not happy. But show me in the Bible where God says, do what you think you need to do if you're not happy. The calling of the Christian is to be holy, to obey Jesus. And sometimes he asks us to suffer. Not to put ourselves in danger, but some of you may have to endure a difficult marriage for a time, as much as I would long for you to enjoy your marriage. And trust me in this, that God is powerful, and he can change people. And so they went on and asked Jesus, well, you got to be kidding me. But now Jesus is going to turn to the, to the topic of children, parenting. Some of you are going, blah, blah, I'm not even married, <laughs> and I don't even have kids. But listen, every Christian should know about these things, okay? We should be thinking about them, or we should be discipling one another. So I'm sure you'll have questions about what we just talked about. We're here to be resources. We're here to provide mentoring. We're here to help you, to point you to Christ. But understand that we're going to do our best from the Bible to try to speak the truth to you in love. If your marriage is in trouble and people don't know it, get help. Come out in the light. Stop being either proud or timid or fearful. You're not the, you're not the only one in trouble. You're like, everyone else looks so happy. Really? I assure you, there are many people struggling with their marriage. But what about this issue of children? It says they began bringing children to Jesus so he might touch them. Now, so far, whenever they were bringing people to Jesus to touch them, it was to heal them. But in this case, these children aren't sick. They just want Jesus to touch them. And we begin to go, why? Well, in the Old Testament, they had this laying on of hands as a blessing, right? And so I'm going to suggest that they, at least at this point, figured Jesus could, could give them a blessing. Don't know exactly what that means. In fact, later, church fathers like Calvin began to see in this the seeds of infant baptism, of which I disagree with. I don't think the Bible teaches infant baptism. But nevertheless, the Bible says the disciples rebuked them. And at first, we're like, why, I ought to, give me a stick, I'll smack them. But we have to understand something. In the first century, children were way, way low on the totem pole, right? Like children, they were just like W.C. Fields, like beat it, kid, you bother me. They really didn't have a voice. They weren't really, you just keep them in line until they become adults, right? And so that was normal. Now, we have to be biblical, and we have to compare our culture. I want to suggest that, man, we're taking the, the thing way to the other end, and the tail's wagging the dog, and there are too many parents that it's all about your kids. That's not biblical. It's not all about your kids, okay? And children need to learn their place and learn how to obey God and honor their parents and do things that they don't want to do and, and learn discipline and learn how to interact and become responsible adults. But, but this is why the disciples rebuked them. It wasn't because they're jerks and they hate kids, 
right? The Bible says Jesus never once sinned. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, right? But there are a couple places in the Bible where Jesus got really mad. So it is not unbiblical to get really mad. It depends on why you're mad and it depends on what you do with your anger, okay? But this is one of them. This set Jesus off. He didn't go off, but he was angry. This word, it says, when they pushed these kids away, Jesus became indignant. So I had to go, well, if that bothers Jesus, I probably ought to understand why. He says, listen here, and he points at those guys, and I don't think he's going, hey, let the little children come to me. He goes, you permit these children to come to me. Don't you hinder them. Why? Well, why, Jesus? Because the kingdom of God belongs to, 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 to people like this. And Jesus, what do you mean by that? Are we all going to go up to heaven? Is it going to be like a, a you know, Willy Wonka factory and Disney? Is it going to be a bunch of kids? Well, actually, ironically, now listen to this. This is very important. 80% of people who enter the kingdom of God, who become believers, who give their lives to Christ and become born again and enter the kingdom of God, 80% of them become a Christian before they're 18. That's just a fact. You don't believe it? How many of you became a Christian before you were 18? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Any questions, right? So we need to understand a couple things. Number one, that children are much more open to the gospel and much more prepared to receive Christ at a young age. So with that in mind, I, I want to just say, look, this passage is about pointing children to Christ. It's not really a passage about parenting. Jesus just says, hey, listen, don't get in the way of kids coming to Jesus, okay? So every one of us as a Christian should, should be thinking things like this. All right, let's start with this whole parenting thing. And by the way, for our Edgley folks are like, I thought I read in the bullets that we get done at 12.15. We normally do, right? But because of that announcement, we're running a little, well, I just lied, okay. We, we normally try to. So when you see me looking at my watch like this, that doesn't mean anything. So, um, but this is going to go, I'll be done before 12.25. If you need to go, we will not be offended. If you have something you need to do, we're not going to go, oh, you don't want to hear the word of God. Apologize for that, but this is really important, and I don't want to skip it. So, let's start with parenting. The number one way that children come to Christ is through their parents. It's not the only way, but primarily through the parents. So, parents, I want to remind you, and grandparents, prioritize your child's salvation. My daughter just sent me a little meme that said this. It's not important whether your kid gets in Harvard, but it's really important that your kid gets in heaven. I thought, yeah, yeah, let, 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 me, let me jump in here. So I said, it's more important for your children to have salvation than to be a super athlete. It's more important that your children one day dance on the streets of gold than on the stage of Broadway. It's more important that your children know the great physician, that they become a great physician. So as a parent, the number one goal, if you're a Christian, you understand, 
is to see your kids believers following Christ. Hands down. In fact, 1 John, he said, there's no greater joy than that my children are walking in the truth. And while it was a spiritual children, it's the same thing. So I'm not telling you this to make you feel guilty. Well, pastor, my kids aren't saved. That's not my, that's my intention. But I want you to make sure that you prioritize that. First of all, on your knees. On your knees. More important even than talking to your kids about God is talking to God about your kids. Day and night, cry out for their souls. My kids didn't all get saved at five years old ago. Oh, Father, can we study the Bible? I need to be about my father's business. I've been through many dangerous toils and snares. Most of you know my son was a heroin addict. And I take no credit. I give God all the glory. But as I said just a few weeks ago, he preached his first sermon at Edgeley, right? So don't give up hope. But secondly, be purposeful. You can't even get a driver's license without studying and passing tests. But there are too many parents who have no plan, no purpose. They don't have a clue, and they're not doing anything about it. Be purposeful. Read. We have good books like Shepherding a Child's Heart, Age of Opportunity. Study. Get in groups. Find mentors. Don't just wing it and at the end go, well, I'll pay for your first two sessions of therapy, therapy, but now you're on your own. Be intentional. The sooner the better. Now, some of you are going, if only I knew that. Listen, that's true of all of us. If I knew then what I know now. You can't go back, but we can move forward. That's why I call grandchildren my great redo. I'm like, finally. You know, my kids are all in therapy, but at least with my grandkids, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So, couple things. Be part of a church. I think this is one of the greatest problems in American culture. We have so elevated our children that church isn't really the priority anymore of the parents or of the children. I want to read you a quote. This is a joy to me. I take no credit, but I thank God that my three children are walking with Jesus. Pray that they will. Don't quit. You pray for your children to walk with Jesus. Pray that they'll get up tomorrow and walk with Jesus. Pray that they will persevere to the end. I pray every day. I say, God, on, on high, I say, please, Father, protect them from the evil one. I understand why Job got up every morning and said, in case my kids sinned. You keep praying for them to persevere. And if they're not saved, don't give up pleading with God. But, but my one daughter sends me, get your kids to heaven, regardless if they get in Harvard. The other one sends me this. And they don't even know I'm preaching on parenting, all in the sovereign grace of God. Sends me one called, take your kids to church. Sounds like some of you are going to go, was he at my house this morning? Make every effort to wake them up early, full with their belts, buckles, and fancy bows. Endure their sleepy, grumpy faces and misplaced shoes. Run around like a mad man and woman, gathering everybody's everything and try to get them out the door. Novel thought. On time. Hop into the car with a shoe in one hand, your makeup bag in the other. That's women. Guys, that's okay. Give those babies a Pop-Tart and some milk and get them eaten in the car. If it's raining, let them get wet. If it's cold, get them a jacket. If, if you're tired, go tired. But take those babies to church. You know why? Because Jesus is there. You're like, well, he's in bed, you know, when they're eating their Cocoa Krispies. Yeah, he is, but he said when two or three gather, he's here in a special way. And he'll meet them there, and he'll meet you, Mom and Dad, and he'll be there with the sweet smile of a Sunday school teacher. 
He'll be there in the goldfish and the apple juice and their little bellies and hearts being filled with love. He'll be there in the hug from a sweet friend, the encouraging smile that assures them. He'll be in the sacred words that are read from the Bible, as Paul said to Timothy, from childhood you have known these scriptures that make you wise to salvation. And of course they don't understand at this point. I just laughed my head off this Sunday night on America's Funniest Videos when they asked the little three-year-old, what'd you learn in Sunday school? She said, I learned about God and Cheez-Its. And they're going, no, Jesus. And she goes, no, Cheez-Its, right? <laughs> Let them see you laugh and cry. Show them how to worship. Open your Bible and teach them how to. Tell them of his greatness and his power and his faithfulness. Tell them what he's done in your life. I begged God for th three years, bring my grandbabies that I can pour into their souls. Take them to church. Maybe not now, but one day they'll love it there. It's the only place where they can go and be themselves. They don't have to be good or smart enough or athletic enough. They don't have to perform for approval. They just get to go and learn that God loves them, that he created them, that they're valued, that they're wanted, that their worth isn't based on their grades or their ability to throw a curveball or their good looks or their skill level. Take them to church before you take them to the ball field, dance studio, or the gym, before you take them on vacation in grandmom's backyard to play, take them to church and let them know that it's a priority. Show them that it has eternal value. Let them see you prioritize your schedule and your extracurricular activities because you value honoring the Lord and gathering with his people. I promise you won't regret it and I promise you won't return void. So let's be purposeful. Let's be prayerful. We have Wednesday nights. 200 kids come every Wednesday night. Today I met people that, that are here because their child was in vacation Bible school. Today I met people that were here because they, they met somebody at community day, right? And so, you know what breaks my heart? Is when I say, what do you mean we don't have enough children's workers did jesus not say permit the children i would think we would have to be telling people stop we've got too many so pray that god will burden our church now this isn't we're not we're not saying we're the church for kids we're, we're it's all about kids i have no intention of that but but hillary clinton said it takes a village and i say no it takes a church it takes a community of god's people who are praying for one another and so be purposeful, be part of a church, be prayerful, and finally, be fearful of doing anything that would cause a child to turn away from Christ. Because Jesus said, you know, it would be better to have a big rock tanged around your neck and thrown in the ocean than to cause a little child who wants to follow me to be hindered. So Jesus takes this seriously. He loves to see children come to Christ. And he loves to see you come to Christ. And if you haven't come to Christ, I, in the name of Jesus, command you to repent and believe right now. Turn to Christ and say, I'm going to start to follow because I believe in him. And I invite you to become a Christ follower. But in the meantime, we're growing as a community. We're not all a bunch of perfect saints with little halos. I heard you in the parking lot. You're like, you did? No. 
I've been there. I'm, I've had to say to my wife, shh, the neighbors can hear us, right? So we're all in this thing together, but Jesus is intentional that discipleship involves parenting, marriage, children, relationships. And so let's commit ourselves to growing in grace. Father, thank you for your word. It's precious. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you came to earth to save our souls from hell. Thank you for pouring out your precious blood on the cross and saying it is finished. We don't have to go to purgatory. We don't have to add anything to it. You paid it all, and we love you for it. And today, I pray for all the marriages in this church, those who are hurting, that you'll bring healing, those who are proud and stubborn and rebellious, that you'll break their stubborn wills and bring them to repentance and humility and healing. For those who are healthy, may they become disciplers and mentors. And we pray for parents, Lord, as they struggle. It's really hard. Grandparents, as we struggle and pray. And for those who have broken hearts because they're still single and want to be married, for those who are brokenhearted because they want to have children and they can't, Oh, Lord, have mercy on them. May your word bear much fruit, and may we grow together as a church as we receive the words of Jesus and grow together until you come again. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.